All right. Good morning, KZYX listeners. This is the Mind Body Health Show, and I'm Casey Johnston, a local pediatrician. And I've been hosting for a few months. And as you all know, this is uh, every other Tuesday show. And we talk to local medical providers, um, as well as uh, community health leaders on this show. And it's for now a pre-recorded show. I know before we've had call-ins um, and a live show, but for now it is pre-recorded. And I wanna pause to thank the KZYX staff, um, especially Eddie and Victor, uh, for all their time and help um, in pre-recording these. I'm technically challenged, so I really appreciate all their help. And so again, this is Mind Body Health, and I'm Casey Johnston, and we're super lucky to have on the show this morning Dr. Sarah Alvord. And she's an internal medicine doctor at the Dora Clinic um, of the Community Health, uh, sorry, Mendocino Community Health Clinic System. Um, so welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so we always start the show with uh, a little just introduction, mm -hmm. um, you know, what what led you to the medical, your medical career, what led mm -hmm. you to um, being here in Ukiah? Okay. So um, um, some of you guys, some people are, are aware that I had a very non-traditional path to medicine. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco um, Bay Area and Menlo Park kind of before it was the Silicon Valley. Um, and um, got my undergraduate degree initially at UC Santa Cruz and spent many years in the restaurant industry, primarily in the Southwest, primarily in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And um, but I think if you had asked me what I wanted to be when I was a, a um, freshman in high school, I would have told you a doctor. But like a lot of people, I kind of decided I wasn't smart enough and had a very kind of peripatetic um path through life. So I went back to school originally to be a nurse practitioner um, in my um, early 30s and switched to medicine and started medical school uh, around my 41st birthday um, and uh, ended up graduating residency about a decade ago. Um, I always was interested in treating um, adults with different chronic diseases. That's how I ended up as an internist. That's what an internist means. Our, our my professional organization's um, motto is we're doctors for adults. So I have the opposite side of the spectrum from you. And um, I ended up in Mendocino County because when I was a kid growing up in the 60s in the Bay Area, this is where my family vacationed as we came up to the Anderson Valley and we still have some property. Um, in the deep end and that we have a little cabin on. And so this was always the prettiest part of the world for me. So I'm very happy to have ended up here. Yeah. I have roots in Santa Cruz as well. Mm -hmm. And my husband as well. And we ended up up here. Yeah. Uh, similar, uh, similar, but different and a lot less people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I looked up actually like the definition of, of internal medicine. Mm -hmm. um, Cause it's, it's more than, than, you know, saying you're an adult, medicine doctor mm -hmm. it's um the actual like definition is looking at all of the systems the complex systems in the body mm -hmm. and really being um you know an investigator and in tying everything together and figuring out the mystery of what's going on yeah um yeah yeah so you know if anybody is a tv fan dr house probably was an internist so we're really kind of 
um, you know, I feel like internists are a little bit of the policy wonks of the of the medical field. Um, and I, I definitely have those tendencies. If something doesn't make sense to me, I'm, I have like done the woke up at three in the morning and it's like, I wonder if it's this, let me look it up really quick kind of thing. So, um, um, and as people age, their needs get more complex. And so you really have to have an kind of an integrated approach and a good understanding of all the systems and all of the specialists in our community if it's a cardiologist or an endocrinologist who's unfortunately we don't have any in this community or um, many of the specialties start as internists so um, um, we get a little bit in my training I got a little bit of of that training as well mm -hmm. and it's I mean it's so important for patients to have a primary care doctor to put it all together. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're seeing six different specialists, they're not necessarily communicating. Mm -hmm. There's not, you need someone putting it all together, mm -hmm. reviewing that list of medications, you know, do any of these interact? Like, you know, so putting it, putting the pieces together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that really is the good, it is the job of the primary care provider, especially as needs get more complex to make sure that, your kidney doctor is not working at cross purposes to your cardiologist, to your pulmonologist. And, you know, um, and I hope I can help people with that. Uh, can I ask what, uh, what kind of cuisine did you, did you cook when you were a chef? Um, mainly? I, <laughs> mainly the place I was at longest is no longer existing. It was called the Zia Diner in Santa Fe. So it was, you know, in the, 80s and 90s, we had these this kind of diner revival where you're trying to do upscale diner stuff. And that's what um, um, mostly I did. So I tried okay. to do local seasonal fairs, I guess, you know, a gastro pub is probably, you know, the closest thing to, that we have these days to what yeah. I did. And I still enjoy cooking. But in the end, cooking is more about repetition and and um, small business management. And so in the end, it wasn't my passion. This is actually my passion, but I still bake. Everybody knows. Well, he, around here, people know that. I'm a, somewhat of a, a COVID cliche because I took up baking sourdough. And so now I do bake sourdough every week. So well, you're also, uh, a, you knit, you're an amazing yeah. knitter. And then I, I, we're here in your clinic mm -hmm. right now on Dora Street and there's all these beautiful flowers. Mm -hmm. um, tell us this. Is there a story behind it? Is that a regular thing or it's just a spring thing here? <laughs> Uh, that's a regular thing. Um, I decided to grow um, a cutting garden. I think it was probably um, too many um, August Saturdays trying to clean, can up my tomatoes. It just wasn't satisfying. It was too hot. And I, you know, I would bring in a few um, things of flowers to work and I got great feedback and it, you know, brightened up the place and the patients all love it. And so the vegetables have gotten smaller and smaller in my garden and the cutting garden has gotten bigger and bigger. So, um, and California is a really easy place to get things to grow. So, and this is certainly a good year for it now that we have some water. Yeah. Yeah. And the wildflowers, especially too. Mm -hmm. So today we kind of talked a little bit before today about what mm -hmm. some big topics to, mm -hmm. to cover. Um, so let's talk about thyroid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, I'm gonna gonna pause or the thyroid gland, I should say. Um, I'm gonna pause briefly 
this is uh, KZYX, the Mind Body Health program that airs every other Tuesday. My name is Casey Johnston. I'm a local pediatrician, and we're here with Dr. Sarah Alvord. And you pronounce it Alvord, is mm-hmm. that correctly? Alvord rhymes with I'm bored. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, because um, so I wanted to ask about you know thyroid conditions. Um, you've taken on. Um, or you've pursued a lot of extra training for, um, you know, endocrinology mm-hmm. condi- or endocrine uh, conditions. Cause, mm-hmm. because like you said before, there's no endocrinologists in our mm-hmm. County, even next to our County, yeah. it's hard to find, um, or anywhere. Um, so the endocrine gland, endocrine gland is, mm-hmm. um, I mean, <laughs> the thyroid <laughs> gland, the master a lot of people refer to it as the master metabolic gland yeah because it really helps us kind of um um manage um our metabolism so yeah and it's very very common in um to have your thyroid just not work as well as um it um used to um and so there are a lot of people who need thyroid replacement and some people have an autoimmune disease called graves disease where they develop antibodies that actually attack their thyroid gland and um and that gives them an overactive thyroid um which um can lead to things like unintentional weight loss and palpitations and um hair loss and so those are pretty common conditions for me to see so is that thyroid conditions they get uh uh, they increase with age, you would say the prevalence. Yes. They, it, in pediatrics, yeah. I mean, I do see a little bit of it, but um, I've been looking forward to this conversation partly because uh, I, I want to learn more. I see some, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not an everyday thing for me. So yeah. it's a con- it, these conditions definitely increase in mm-hmm. prevalence with age. Yes, they do. And there's some, um, and it's a little bit tricky because um, it, um, when, you know, it all starts with a blood test and we use an indirect test, I think is very confusing to people. So when we're testing your thyroid, the most accurate thing to test is something called thyroid stimulating hormone. And thyroid stimulating hormone is actually produced in your pituitary gland and um, your pituitary gland is in your brain. And so I, I think of it as the hormone that tells your thyroid whether it needs to function or not. And so when your thyroid's underactive, of your uh, thyroid stimulate thyroid stimulating hormone goes up and when your thyroid's overactive it goes down and so um and then to further confuse this as we get older um you can have an elevated thyroid stimulating hormone that is age appropriate so um we have different cutoffs depending on how old you are um and um then um so I didn't know I didn't know that because I mean there's different levels for for babies and mm-hmm. for kids but I didn't know on the on the other end of the spectrum there's different mm-hmm. yeah there is and there's so sometimes um I see not a fair amount of people who've had a very kind of um marginal thyroid stimulating hormone um and then put on treatment and not felt good on it and asked me do I still need to be on it and uh we've done our due diligence and taken the monofit and retested it and they essentially had some normal numbers mm-hmm. you can also have something called subclinical 
hypothyroidism. So this is this a very confusing kind of term. So um, you have a normal thyroid stimulating hormone has a level up to about 4.5. I think it's picograms per milliliter. I'd have to look at my labs to be sure about that. But um, um, the endocrine society guidelines say we only usually definitely give most people um, thyroid replacement in the um, form usually a synthetic thyroid if their thyroid stimulating hormone goes above nine. So what do you do with those people who have an elevated thyroid stimulating hormone and they're, um, um, and it's not above nine, which is pretty common. I mean, I see it in teenagers quite, quite a mm -hmm. bit actually. And so, um, um, you look and you see if they have, um, symptoms, um, in older adults, one of the symptoms we really look at is arrhythmias, actually, or um, um, and um, and it usually has to be more than just one symptom. So if someone comes in and they have a mildly elevated TSH and they have fatigue, I wouldn't necessarily just put them on thyroid um, because fatigue can be caused by eight million things <laughs> yeah. um, and um, or um, weight gain. Everybody who gains weight really thinks, you know, um, or almost hopes that it's it's an easy fix. It's their thyroid that needs fixing. So it can be um, a little bit tricky piecing out who needs replacement and who doesn't. But Well, and some of, um, I mean, rapid weight gain or stress, chronic stress mm -hmm. can stress the thyroid and mm -hmm. actually cause... I mean, is that, is that true? Like the other way, instead of the subclinical thyroid causing the, the weight gain, it could mm -hmm. be the other way or stress, like mm -hmm. chronic stress. I think I, I, mm -hmm. or this is my theory in some teenagers, <laughs> it seems like when um, stress goes down and we repeat it, it normalizes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's very pulsatile. And then the other frustrating thing is, is that if you are going to, you know, usually I try to get two, two abnormal measurements before I get treatment on anybody. And then if you do decide to start treatment in any way, um, um, you um, have to wait five to six weeks after you put somebody on treatment to decide whether it's working. Um, the other confusing thyroid condition is this, um, is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, right? Everybody wants to know if they, well, not everybody, a lot of people are like, do I have Hashimoto's? So, there's an antibody that you can check. Um, some people who have an underactive thyroid don't have it. And the confusing thing about Hashimoto's is it can produce an overactive thyroid, an underactive thyroid, or people can be euthyroid, which is normal. Um, and so when I see those antibodies and people who have that antibody, I just follow their labs more closely because it can really have a variable presentation. Um, the way someone explained it to me in medical school that kind of makes sense to me is when you have this autoimmune attack on the thyroid, at first you can go hyperthyroid because your thyroid is kind of damaged and leaky. Um, and then it runs out of thyroid hormone and then your high thyroid gets underactive. Um, and then it normalizes and it becomes um, normal again. So it's one of those things you just have to follow. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, some of this is, um, you know, keeping good records and checking lab work appropriately. But a little of this is also where, you know, medicine turns into the more of the art and less of the science and just kind of listening to the patient and saying, okay, how symptomatic are you? Is there something we need to do about those symptoms?
and addressing yeah. those. Yeah. And that's super important. Like the symptoms, because mm-hmm. if you, yeah, if you think you're doing everything by the book, but you feel awful. Yeah. Yeah. You got to listen to your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, so kind of backing up a little bit, um, you had mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, the thyroid helps us process energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, it affects all kinds of things from, you know, our, our hair to our skin, to our digestion, mm-hmm. like we can have diarrhea or constipation mm-hmm. or, um, dramatic weight changes, mm-hmm. fatigue, um, like what are maybe some other symptoms that I'm missing of a thyroid problem? Um, you know, uh, I think, I really think of the, you know, in adults, I think of cardiac problems. You know, I, one of, as a medical student, one of the first patients I need to, I had to take care of, um, she had hyperthyroidism and had it for so long. She actually, um, and had palpitations for so long. Um, some of the, one of the leaflets and one of her aortic valves was torn actually, and she needed an aortic valve replacement. So, I mean, that's kind of rare, but that happens, um, from having a thyroid, from having hyperthyroidism that was not addressed. Um, menstrual irregularities is a big one. Uh, the other thing that I worry about, um, um, from people who have an overtreated thyroid, who are taking too much thyroid hormone is, um, bone loss. So, um, and that you're not necessarily going to see symptoms, but, you know, if I have somebody who's has Graves disease, who's had an overactive thyroid for a long time, I'm definitely checking their bone density. Or if I get a patient who's been on thyroid replacement inappropriately, I'm definitely checking their bone density because I mm-hmm. don't want them to get, um, um, a fragility fracture, which mm-hmm. can happen. So it's interesting. You mentioned on a kind of a side note, um, there was a, uh, a track professional track coach who got in mm-hmm. trouble for, for getting his athletes on thyroid medication. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what exactly the benefit, I don't know, weight yeah. loss or something, yeah. but, um, I mean, this is in mainstream media. It's all, it's out yeah. there, but, um, yeah, I mean, bone law and then a lot of, of the athletes got fractures. And, yeah. and so that's, yeah. But not, I, yeah. Um, so, and thyroid is, so it's, it's not, it's not benign. I have seen, there are some people who, you know, I don't want to bad mouth anybody, but, you know, I have encountered, um, read about, um, alternative practitioners prescribing excess thyroid for fatigue. And, you know, um, I've seen bone loss. I've seen, you know, people going into cardiac arrhythmias like AFib. So it's really not something you want to take just because you feel tired and you've gained weight. We live in an obesogenic society. It's that's an incredibly complex problem that nobody's really figured out. Um, um, there is no miracle drug, not even Ozempic. That's another story. Um, um, so, um, you know, I would, you know, tell anybody just to, you know, like anything else, the body is pretty exquisitely balanced Mm -hmm. and, um, it takes a lot to push it off balance. And so, um, you know, don't really take anything you don't need, you know, that's my basic rule (laughs) of thumb. So, and I'm glad you mentioned, um, that you often recheck an abnormal thyroid Mm -hmm. test, because I think that's a important lesson. If something's 
off, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the thyroid. And I, I've seen that too, like get a lab and, oh my gosh, wasn't expecting this. And then mm-hmm. it repeat it and it's actually okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, test tubes do get mixed up too sometimes. So, and that's part of uh, most of the testing. I do that new diagnosis of diabetes, um, new diagnosis of um, hypogonadism, um, any of those, you know, most of the endocrine tests, part of the diagnostic workup is repeating the test to ensure that the um, finding is repeatable and verified. So most adults at some point seem to get a thyroid test Mm -hmm. at some point, but is it an official like screening guideline? It didn't, I was trying to look that up this morning, but it doesn't seem, but there's a lot of like risk factors and symptoms that would lead you to test thyroid. Yeah. Um, I tend to, I don't think there's an official guideline. I tend to do it, um, you know, when I'm looking, you know, I'm trying to run through my list of official things that they want me to test for U.S. Preventative Service Task Force. Thyroid is not one of them. Diabetes screening, yes. Lipid screening, yes. Screening for HIV and hepatitis C, everybody wants in their life, yes. Thyroid, no. But do I typically do it? Yes. You Mm -hmm. know, because let's say um, your cholesterol is high. Um, And one of the things I want to make sure is that your thyroid is not um, out of whack. Um, Because I can't, you know, I don't really know if that's a real finding until I know you're, you're in a euthyroid state, for example. Oh, okay. So your cholesterol can be impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's so much, so if there's a family history of thyroid condition, if someone Mm -hmm. has a, has diabetes, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, type two or, or type one or other autoimmune conditions, then it would definitely be recommended to test for thyroid too. So I think, you know, it's part of my general fatigue workup. It's part of my workup for menstrual irregularities, diabetes and hyperlipidemia, um, hair loss, um, palpitations, hypertension. So yeah, it's very, it's very. And I guess we didn't, or maybe we did mention the thyroid gland is, we didn't, is on the, is on the neck, the part of the neck. Mm -hmm. It's important. So, um, I mean, I have seen a child or two kids actually Mm -hmm. with enlarged, like with goiters. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your physical exam? Like or what a what is a goiter? What a goiter is is it's some sort of enlargement of of the thyroid. So, um, and um, there's it can happen. It, your thyroid can be inflamed and infusely diffusely enlarged. Uh, what we don't really um, see so much anymore are people with iodine deficiency who get enlarged thyroids because of that. That was typical hundreds of years ago, but now we put iodine in salt and salts and everything. So uh, there aren't a lot of people with iodine deficiency. Um, occasionally you'll see people born without thyroids and they need lifelong thyroid replacement. Um, but a goiter basically is an enlarged thyroid. The other way you can do it is you can get nodules in your thyroid, um, that can be, you know, non-functional cells that cause thyroid enlargement. And those are known as hold nodules. And then you can have ones that produce thyroid nodules and, uh, those are known or thyroid hormones, sorry. And those are known as hot nodules. And then of course, the thing we don't want to miss that is 
pretty rare is enlargement due to ca um, cancer of the thyroid. So sometimes you are ordering imaging. Sometimes like kind of I'm imaging ordering you order? imaging. So um, typically I just get a straight up um, 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 ultrasound of the neck. If, you know, so if I thyroid numbers are off, um, I'll do an exam and um, I often just get the ultrasound anyway, um, because I, you know, I second guess myself. If I have abnormal numbers, I'm like, is this real? Am I, you know, does this really feel enlarged to me or, or am I just making it up? Cause I'm worried about the labs, but mm -hmm. cause it's, um, it's not to me, to my fingers, it's not terribly obvious. I, I completely agree. I was in medical <laughs> school and residency. I just, yeah, I always, the, the people who like could feel the thyroid gland well, or at least they said yeah. that. I just was yeah. kind of yeah. envious because I, like, yeah. I don't, yeah, unless it's huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's and hard then to it's tell. hard. You're, you know, I was taught to feel people from behind, and then you're trying to decide is one side bigger than the other. So I just get the, yeah, the, the, a straight up <laughs> ultrasound. There are some other studies that will radio that kind of tag whether or not, um, your um any nodules found are uptaking thyroid or whether it's diffusely uptaking thyroid hormone and those kind of scans in the past um can be used to distinguish between if you have hyperthyroidism say uh you know hot thyroid nodules and graves disease but i usually more rely on the blood test personally to do that rather than um put um, you know, have the patient do that imaging. I'll still get the, just the plain ultrasound, but without the radioactive tracer that does that. Cause I can make the diagnosis with the labs. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's other labs too, that may be ordered in addition to that TSH. Yes. And that the, so mm -hmm. the, like the T4 and mm -hmm. there are specific antibodies that will tell me if you have Graves disease or not, or Hashimoto's disease. Um, and, um, then I look, we, I do look at thyroid hormone itself. Um, one of the last, um, lectures I went to in for a continuing med uh, medical education lecture on thyroid, the endocrinologist presenting it said, you know, we check the thyroid hormone directly, but the TSH test is probably a hundred times more accurate than measuring thyroid hormone itself. So, and that's why um, we measure, do that indirect measure. And then, and a lot of that is because thyroid hormone is bound to um, sex hormones. So um, another thing you wouldn't do um, mostly is take care of pregnant people with thyroid disorders. And that's a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. There's literally tables I have to look up um, <laughs> because all the levels and all the numbers are different when you're pregnant because of the hormonal shifts in pregnancy. So, um, um, keeps, um, keeps the brain working. It's, <laughs> it's not simple, but you know, um, um, we're lucky we have very good resources here. We can look up and as long as you're taking the time to look up the data, you know, you can get, uh, I think, um, um, it, you can help people out. Mm -hmm. Um, some, there are some, um, I think that there were, there were some doctors in this area who were really looking at active thyroid hormone and, and activated T3 versus T4 and trying to balance it. Um, 
the endocrinologist who trained me <laughs> at Drexel University and in, in um, um, endocrinology department in Philadelphia, which is where I did my residency, um, my training and what the endocrine society guidelines say is that most people have no trouble converting thyroid hormone to the active level. So you don't really need to follow those numbers and uh, and give different forms of thyroid hormone. So uh, there are some other practitioners who have a different perspective, but last time I looked at the guidelines, that was an endocrine society guideline. So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't do that. And you mentioned, so thyroid, um, uh, you know, challenges or problems in, during pregnancy, mm -hmm. but um, that could, and you mentioned before, you know, menstrual irregularities mm -hmm. when there's a thyroid abnormality, mm -hmm. um, but it can also, you know, some women can have a more difficult time getting, getting pregnant yes. if they have an undiagnosed or untreated thyroid yes. condition. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, so the, just to reintroduce us here, uh, this is KZYX's Mind Body Health Program, and my name is Casey Johnson, and I'm here with Dr. Sarah Alvord, and she's an internal medicine doctor at Mendocino Community Health Clinics at the Dora Street Clinic, and you're mainly at the Dora Street Clinics. This is yeah. your your spot. Nice. <laughs> yes. It's a nice clinic over here. I spend my time at the Hillside and our Lakeview Clinics. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's nice and shady over here, a little, yeah. a little bit shadier. We've got our lovely redwoods, so it's it's yeah. nice and peaceful. So it is <laughs> a little bit easier to get in and out than the bigger clinics. So, yeah. Um, so we're going to uh, pivot a little bit um, on topics. We were talking about the thyroid gland and um, all the different things that can go, you know, go wrong with it, I guess, and, um, and symptoms that you can have. And so another, well, you have a lot of areas of expertise, <laughs> but I think for our general audience today, I definitely wanted to leave time to talk about diabetes. Okay. Um, if that's okay with you, yeah. <laughs> which is, I mean, there are whole books written about it, yeah. so it's a huge topic, but, um, and I, I'm kind of a medical history nerd sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and diabetes was kind of first observed um, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Like in the, there's Egyptian papyrus papers from 1500 BC. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't a doctor back then because, as you know, probably the way to test for diabetes was tasting people's urine. So, yeah. Yeah. And if it was sweet, <laughs> You well, know, they have the problem. So, <laughs> well, that's what, yeah, the, there's like Indian texts from the fifth century BC, mm -hmm. uh, calling it the uh, disorder of honey urine. So yeah, mm -hmm. someone must've tested that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's from ancient China to, uh, all over the world, there's descriptions of diabetes, mm -hmm. but it often is describing the urine either being sweet tasting mm -hmm. or, <laughs> or uh, frequent, um, yeah. or the disease of, um, what was it called? Like the wasting thirst. Yes. That was a description in China, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1700s, um, a British doctor linked diabetes with the pancreas because mm -hmm. he found, he did an aut autopsy and the mm -hmm. pancreas was all trimmed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I guess let's just start from the just broad overview. Um, 
yeah, what, how do you describe diabetes to your patients? And so, you know, that goes back to, you know, um, um, you know, sugar in the urine. So what diabetes is, and there are many forms of diabetes is, um, too much sugar in the blood. Um, and the, um, wasting thirst part of it is, um, 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 well, let me, let me dial it back here. So too much sugar in the blood. And there's two major types that we see in the United States. Um, um, we have the type, um, where you don't make insulin and the type, um, where your body doesn't listen to insulin. So insulin is a hormone that is produced in the pancreas. And um, it basically allows all the cells of your body to take sugar out of the bloodstream, which is our gasoline, our main fuel, and utilize it. And uh, the problem is um, when um, you have too much sugar in the bloodstream, it can be very toxic. So in type 1 diabetes, which we used to primarily associate with children, which can also happen in adulthood, um, um, you're, there is an autoimmune attack on the pancreas. And so you lose all um, ability to manufacture insulin. So people with type who live with type one diabetes, they need to have insulin replacement. And so they're usually taking multiple injections a day. Anytime they put calories inside them, they're, you know, what um, people who don't live with type one diabetes, their pancreas will produce insulin. So a person who lives with type one diabetes, they will need to take some sort of insulin, whether it's an injection through a pump or whatever, so that they can process that food. And there are, and there are very successful people that uh -huh. have learned to manage mm -hmm. and live their yeah. full, yeah. you know, lives. <laughs> and there's, um, um, yeah. And this is a great time to be a type one diabetic. Cause there's a lot of, that could be its own show. There is a tremendous amount of technology that can really help. Um, and then, um, the more common form of diabetes, um, that we see, and I think also more and more in the pediatric population that we previously associated with adults is the disease of insulin resistance where, um, um, people's, uh, people who live with this disease, their body does not uh, resist the action of insulin. And so their blood sugars go up. Um, and for those folks, they can usually start with working on diet, limiting simple sugars, um, and different forms of oral medications, or now some injectable medications that are not insulin. Um, and, um, that, um, and help keep their blood sugars controlled that way. I am very fortunate in that one of the things that, um, I do to help myself and help my patients is I, uh, participate in a program with Stanford University called Echo Diabetes. And what that is, um, is a program where myself and some practitioners and other rural clinics, um, um, in, in around Northern California, there's some folks who are doing it on the coast and up in Eureka and over in Anderson Valley. And, uh, we meet with the endocrinology department at Stanford twice a month over lunch. We get a lecture about diabetes, primarily around type one and, um, but also about issues in and around type two. And then one of the participants who's at one of the satellite clinics 
presents a case, um, and then we can all learn from that case. And I've been doing that, I want to say close to five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And it's been quite a resource for myself and my patients. Um, and I've really learned a lot from that group. And it's really shifted how I approach my patients. Um Because I think I was trained kind of very old school, like I got to scare people straight, Mm. you know, because this is a deadly disease. And, you know, what um, my colleagues in endocrinology have really found is that's incredibly ineffective. That's, you know, and um, and disrespectful to the patient and uh, does not lead to improved outcomes. So this kind of, you know. Um, and you know, I see it in my patients. I can't tell you how many times I've had people with diabetes walk into the room and the first thing out of their mouth is don't be mad. (sighs) Don't be mad. I didn't check my blood sugar. Don't be mad. I skipped a shot. Don't be mad. You know? And, um, so I think in medicine, we have a lot of repair work to do. Mm -hmm. I completely, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Um, because it's not helpful. And so, um, and um, I really respect the folks at Stanford and the endocrinology community in general, because it's not just the, the endocrinologists at Stanford, because they're really kind of working on trying to repair that relationship between patients and their physicians. So that it really is, you know, we are really, you know, there to support and educate and say, okay, this is what the pathophysiology is. This is the scope of treatments available. What really works for you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and uh, that ends up, um, you know, and often that ends up spilling over to, I get the statements like, my kids are terrified I'm going to go, my, you know, especially with my type one diabetics, my kids are terrified that I'm going to go low how can I help them? That's where some of the technology is really coming in and being helpful. And being part of the Stanford um, conferences or educational Mm -hmm. conferences that you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine it helps tremendously keeping up with all the new technologies Mm -hmm. um, because it's really, I mean, yeah, there's so much more in the last five years even. Yeah. I didn't really know much about the technology um, until I got here. And so it was largely self-taught. And so that really helped out a lot. So the main two pieces of technology we have now, I think the first one that any diabetic can use is a continuous glucose monitor. So you see these a lot on TV. Um, And this is something that you would wear on the arm or the abdomen, you know, it's about the size of a silver dollar, or they're ones that are more oblong, they go into the tissue in between um, the cells, and it reads the blood, it reads the sugar content there. So it's actually about 20 minutes behind where your blood sugar is. And um, either with a phone or some sort of reader, rather than sticking your finger to find out where your blood sugars are, you can um, hold this up over the sensor and it will give you a blood sugar. And I've had, my joke is if I put this on any person who's living with diabetes, it's better than any drug because it really, if they look at it and they listen to it, it's a great teacher. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'll get comments like, oh, I didn't, you know, I just was having a handful of grapes at night. I didn't know it would make my blood sugar go up to 400. And everybody reacts to different things a little bit differently. And that may seem obvious to one, what is obvious to one person may not be obvious to another person. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, a good point. Cause every, yeah, everyone metabolizes things 
differently. Yeah. And everyone's built differently and mm-hmm. their diet and everyone's nutrition is differently mm-hmm. um, or different. Um, and so that, so the continuous glucose monitor and then, and then what about the insulin? Yeah. Technology? So, um, um, really, you know, so, um, a lot of people come to me, whether they're type one or type two, and they're really hoping what an insulin pump will take their decision-making away from it. Um, and that's not right where the technology's at yet. So an insulin pump without a continuous glucose monitor that it can work with is just a fancy syringe. It's just an insulin delivery uh, method. And so what the pumps do, most people who, um, most type ones need some long act, some a base level of insulin going all the time. And previously they would give themselves a, a shot of, long acting insulin that lasts for 24 hours. And then they would give themselves some short acting insulin every time they ate, usually about every three to four hours. So what the how the pumps replicate that and replicate the action of your pancreas is they dribble in a little bit of short acting insulin all the time. And then when the person wants to eat and needs more insulin, they can either put in a set amount of units or um, if most of my type one diabetics have learned to calculate how many grams of carbohydrates are in each meal, and then they can put that in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it replaces both the 24 hour um, insulin and the need to bolus before. So we are in the era era of uh, so-called um, artificial pancreas um, hybrid closed loop systems. So what those systems can do is um, we have some companies that um, work uh, where the pump actually communicates with the continu- a continuous glucose monitor and is constantly reading the trends of the blood sugar and the pump is then programmed to alter the rate of basal insulin, that long acting insulin, depending on um, whether the person's sugar is going up or going down or staying the same. Um, And the pumps now will cut people off of their insulin before they go low because lows are very dangerous to diabetics. Mm -hmm. You can go into a coma and die very quickly. Um, And um, but similarly, um, blood, high blood sugars can be dangerous too. And so the pumps then can give people extra boluses. What the pumps can't do right now is look at your plate of food and tell you how much you're going to eat and give you um, a um, bolus. But there are, there are the companies that are producing these products, which are primarily, you know, um, Tandem Diabetes working with a, a, um, a CGM called a Dexcom, a Medtronic, um, Omnipod. They are all working in developing a full hybrid closed loose, um, loop system that would, for type 1 diabetics, that would be a, essentially a set it and forget it. That wow. the algorithm is sophisticated enough that sees the blood sugar start to go up when the person eats, that it would keep up with that without someone having to do anything else. Um, and these really have been game changing, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, technologies for patients. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, 
when I have a patient who's been a diabetic for type one diabetic for, or sorry, has lived with type one diabetes, I got to watch my language for 40 years. Um, um, and they, um, all of a sudden I say, well, just trust the pump. They're going to, it's going to tell you how much to give you before your meal and cut you off before you go low. And, you know, um, and sometimes people have trouble with that because they've been told all their life that if they aren't watching that like a hot, they're going to die. But mm-hmm. a lot of people are um, using these and seeing dramatic improvements in their blood sugar numbers and mm-hmm. um, and their overall health. So, And especially, I mean, there are alarms on, on some of them now, right? If you go below a certain number. There like to- are alarms. And um, um, so the patient is signaled. Um, and I... Um, um, and that exists even just with the CGM. So for, with the continuous glucose monitors. So, um, and you can have family members, um, who have, who can, you know, um, get apps on their phone so they can follow along with family members. So if you have a visually impaired or a hearing impaired patient with diabetes, which I do, um, have those, um, folks, um, the, you know, a family member can get alarmed. Um, and there are aftermarket products, like there's one called Luke Glucose. So this is a light that oh, you glucose. can, le- yeah, Glucose, <laughs> G-L-O-C-O-S, um, that you can put in your house that will match with your continuous glucose monitor. Um, and, you know, ha- I think it's, you know, um, blue is good and red is bad. And, you know, so red is low and you know, so it gives different colors depending on where the blood sugar is. Um, so, um, and if you've got a family member who you've seen passed out because their sugar is too low, um, um, you know, I get a lot of feedback from my patients who live with type one diabetes that, you know, their family values having that app on their phone or that, um, that little light around. So they know Mm -hmm. how they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear that all the time. You know, my daughter's checking my phone. So to make sure my blood sugars are okay. And the glucose monitor, the continuous glucose monitor. Mm-hmm. I mean, just you can see, you can look back too, like mm-hmm. days or weeks or months, I guess you could look back forever. Yeah. I usually look back about a month and okay. it's really helpful with pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can really help um, folks kind of tweak what they're doing. Um, and, um, it's really good. It's, um, I don't, I'll show you one of my notes sometimes, but, um, yeah, when I, when people come in with a continuous glucose monitor or a pump, um, I can download them and I usually get about a 15 page report that actually becomes part of their medical record. Um, and it really shows in detail why things are happening. And I can also assuage a lot of fears. There's a, you know, if, um, patients are, you know, worried about going low or high at certain points, we can kind of look and say, okay, well, here's the data. And uh, this is or is not happening. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people can get a lot of reassurance from that. And make some, I mean, some dietary changes in terms of like, Mm -hmm. more protein or fiber. Mm -hmm. um, So you're not having bigger, big swings in your sugar. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems like that would be helpful for that too. Yeah, um, I, I think it's really helpful. Um, high, high fat, high fat, and high protein meals are very are big bugaboos for 
um, diabetes, diet, people who live with diabetes, because everything gets broken down to sugar eventually. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the thing that I think most of my folks who live with diabetes know is like, well, if, I, if they eat Chinese food or pizza seem to be the things where, uh, their blood sugar goes up and stays up for much longer than they would expect. And that's probably because of the high protein and fat content. Um, you can, ex when someone eats, um, carbohydrates, you can kind of expect this bell curve of their blood sugar going up at about two hours and kind of coming back down to baseline in about four hours if they haven't had any insulin. You will see a lower slope but similar curve because of the fat and the protein um, that takes that takes place over maybe six hours. So mm -hmm. um, kind of advanced placement treating uh, folks with type 1 diabetes involves sometimes multiple boluses of long-acting insulin where uh, patients will go in and give themselves more insulin um, two or three hours after they're eating to account for a high protein or a high fat meal. But that's very, oh, okay. not everybody <laughs> needs to do that, but that's really advanced placement. Now, and that's, you know, a very different um, pathophysiology and then in uh, type 2 diabetes, or um, where people who live with that live with insulin resistance. And if they're eating a more lower carbohydrate, higher protein, um, higher vegetable um, content meal, um, they um, the blood sugars won't raise as high or as quick, and they probably can deal with that uh, rising blood sugar actually more effectively. So that's... Um, um, a better approach for folks with that pathophysiology. So that's important to know um, um, right off the bat what the pathophysiology of the diabetes is involved. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the, yeah, the workup or the lab workup, figuring mm -hmm. out if it's type one or type two. Because as you said, um, we can't just say type one diabetes is affecting mm -hmm. just young, diagnosed at the young age, uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, people, there's another peak in, when people are in their forties, even or twenties. Um, and then same goes with type two diabetes. I mean, I'm seeing kids in the pediatric clinic with, with type two diabetes mm -hmm. pretty young. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, one of the things that, um, happened with, uh, coronavirus is it seems to have stimulated some type one diabetes in older individuals, people in their forties and fifties are suddenly mm -hmm. developing type one diabetes. Um, and, um, so that's something we have to watch out for. And there are other rarer forms of diabetes, things like the, um, we call modi mature onset of diabetes of the young, which are really just kind of genetic, variances in processing sugar where you may have higher sugars than normal, but you're not really a typical, uh, don't have a typical type two diabetes physiology associated with it. I have a handful of people who have diabetes due to um, dysfunction of the pancreas that's not an autoimmune attack. They've had cancer, they've had chronic pancreatitis or some other condition and their pancreas just doesn't work. So we treat them more like a type one um, than anything else, but they don't have those antibodies that went into their um, pancreatic cells and killed things off. Um, and, you know, that uh, 
can happen. Like I said, with things like cancer, or alcoholism, I've seen that on occasion. Your pancreas just gets, gets burnt out, burnt out, not <laughs> yeah. working well and then not anymore. working anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and for that reason, yeah, then they become diabetic. So. Okay. And so to reintroduce, this is KZYX. I'm Casey Johnston, a local pediatrician, and we're on the Mind Body Health show today with Dr. Sarah Alvord, and she's an internal medicine doctor at the Doris Street Health uh, Clinic with Mendocino Community Health Clinics. And we're, we've, we've talked about the thyroid gland, we were talking about diabetes, um, the different types. And so kind of backing up, um, there's a couple big broad topics I want to cover, but we only have a few, uh, a few minutes, but so what, so type two diabetes. So it's more when your insulin's not working or your, your body's mm-hmm. resistant to, to insulin. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times your body starts trying to make more insulin mm-hmm. cause it's not working that well. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what leads to that? And it's a very, com- very complicated answer. Cause there's also like genetics, mm-hmm. um, at play too. And actually like type two to diabetes is more inherited than type one, mm-hmm. which we don't, it doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't seem to make sense at first, but, um, but it, yeah, that's what we've been seeing increasingly. So yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. with our current American diet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, the, yeah, so it's a disease of, you know, how to explain insulin resistance. Um, um, I think, um, if you want to take a deep dive, you know, I often refer to UCSF actually has some great web pages on, on explaining this. Um, but, um, I think, you know, we know, um, that insulin resistance, there seems to be a signal of connection to obesity, but not a hundred percent of the people who have insulin resistance also have obesity. Um, uh, we um, have seen a rise in the last 150 years and um, in both um, um, insulin resistance and obesity, uh, there seems to be emerging evidence that this is um, related to shelf-stable, highly processed, readily available carbohydrates. Those don't seem to be really at all good for us. So when I, your body is getting yeah. that much sugar it's hard for your insulin to keep up with it. (laughs) And so I think of it in my, in my brain anyway, I think of it a little bit, like I think of, you know, this notion of tolerance that we talk about in, you know, um, people who who have substance um, use disorder. So your body doesn't process sugar that well. And um, so you get more sugar and then your body gets used to having that high sugar. um, And, um, you pump out more insulin um, to try to counteract it. And the body is just kind of, you know, like, oh, what's that stuff? I'm, you know, um, and, you know, um, and so you get in this kind of cascade where your bo- your pancreas keeps on trying to produce more and more insulin and the insulin levels get up and the sugar levels get up. And the problem with insulin, insulin's an antibiotic steroid. So the more insulin you have on board, also that's gonna be weight gain promoting. Um, and so then, you know, you know, here I and, and there's a whole link with like cortisol and yeah. stress hormones and it's yes. very complicated. <laughs> yes. We're in the other room I could show you that I have a, a little poster on my wall. Um, 
from a great resource called Diatribe, and it's the 42 of factors that affect your blood sugar levels. Um, stress is one of them. Heat's one of them. Caffeine's one of them. You know, I get that all the time. I don't know why my blood sugar went up. All I did was drink a cup of coffee. And, um, um, you know, high blood sugars also will, um, you know, stimulate your body to produce more high blood sugar. So it can become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for the type, people who live with type 2 physiology, have I had patients re um, reverse it on diet alone? It's not possible for everybody, but yes, I have. And usually those folks are eating a very low, uh, like no refined carbohydrates, a few simple carbohydrates, high protein, mostly fruits and vegetables, no processed foods. And, and they can reverse And exercising and sleep and, and yeah. <laughs> exercising and sleep and they can reverse it. So, okay. um, um, but, um, um, and sometimes people getting bariatric surgery, it reverses it. And then sometimes I've had people do all those things and it still doesn't reverse. So there is a heavy genetic um, um, component that, you know, there are some things that we control and some things that we can't. So, and I, I tell my patients, you know, people ask me, why does it, why is this happening to me? And it's like, you, that's what you want in the genetic lottery. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a number of yeah. things yeah. we can win yeah. in the genetic lottery. <laughs> that lottery sometimes that you like and you don't like you yeah. got it with your hair color and your eye color and yeah well we only have a few seconds left here but um again this is dr sarah alvord and she's an internal medicine doctor in ukiah and she has a lot of areas of expertise and today we covered uh, a little bit of about the thyroid hormone and and a little bit about diabetes um, but she's just a wealth of knowledge and i'm lucky to work in the same organization as you thank you and thank you so much for being on the show thank you This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.